to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew's Gospel chapter 7. I'd like to get right into our text today, and I want to read what some have considered to be the most sobering words, the most solemn section of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to read verses 21 through 23, and as we do, I want you to consider these words very carefully. I want you to stare at them very intently, and I want you to know that these words were intended for you. As much as they are given to the people that were in attendance on the day that Jesus preached this at the Sea of Galilee, these words are for you, every person in this building. Stand with me, please, as we look at God's Word. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven... But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence today and... We read these sobering words, and perhaps we can't even imagine at this point how important that these words are and how we do need to look at them very, very closely. Each of us is coming down to a time when we are going to stand between life and death, and we need to know where we are going when we leave this life. We need to have assurance of our salvation now. We need to know that we know you. And we find in these words of Jesus that we are to examine very, very carefully whether we are truly in the faith because that's all that will matter when we stand in judgment. Lord, I pray that you'd bless each person today. May we do a careful examination. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Today we're going to concentrate mainly on verse number 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. I want to remind you of a very important word that we find throughout this sermon in chapters 5 and 6. In Matthew 5, verse number 6, Jesus said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. In the 10th verse, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in the sixth chapter, verse number 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Righteousness is the key to this. How you can be right with God. I mean, that's really the thrust of the entire sermon that Jesus preached. The problem of righteousness is what Jesus addresses because the only way that you can get into God's kingdom is that you must be righteous. And the Sermon on the Mount presents God's standard of righteousness over against 
the self-righteous standard of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we find in this sermon that there are multiple verses that show us that we are not good enough to get into God's kingdom. We're not good enough to live by God's standard. His standard is actually perfect holiness and righteousness. And he expresses that in chapter 5, verse number 48. He says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. The Old Testament law that was given by uh, Moses on Mount Sinai was to show us that perfection can never be attained by keeping commandments. We can never be righteous enough in God's eyes because we fall short of keeping God's commandments every single day of our lives. And so what Jesus does in the sermon is to reinforce the law's intent. What is the law intended to to do for us. It's to show us that we cannot be righteous in God's eyes, that Jesus uh, looks at this and tells us that nothing more or less than Old Testament law and the application of it, that's what we need. And he upholds the Old Testament to show the people that the self-righteous efforts of scribes and Pharisees was not enough to get them into God's kingdom. And so the only solution that he has for us is that we would seek God's righteousness which in fact is a law-based effort, only it's not our effort. It's the life of Christ that was lived perfectly for us. And then those merits of Christ's life are given to us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we trust in his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, then God's righteousness is given to us. And so the righteousness that God requires is not a self-based effort. Salvation can never come by anything that you do, it comes by only thing, the only way, and that is what Christ has done for you. Now, most of you get that. You've attended Brian Baptist Church, most of you, and you can't escape one of these services without some way or another. I'm going to tell you what I've just said. But that's not true in most churches. We're continually confronted by people that are involved in self-help systems, in self-esteem systems, self-esteem preaching, uh, those that preach the sacraments, those that are social do-gooders, any number of variety of ways that people think that they need to be right with God. It all boils down to one thing. I must be good enough in order to get into heaven. By myself, I have to be good enough. And Jesus thoroughly rejects that idea. In fact, he teaches the exact opposite. And he says, you're never going to be good enough to get into heaven. You can't even be good enough with his help. That is, if you think that your good works actually have anything to do with it or make you in any way more acceptable to God than you otherwise would be. Salvation is actually complete reliance upon Christ. It's knowing that he and he alone can save you. And that's why we say that we're justified by faith alone. Paul's argument in Romans chapter 3 reduces to that very same conclusion. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then he said in the 28th verse of that same chapter, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So that is the essence of justification. We are saved by faith alone. But there's also danger to those who rest in justification by faith alone if they've never understood that justifying faith always results in a life that is different from what it was before. 
And not only is it different, but it's saturated with different desires. There are different thought processes. There are different motives. In essence, the person who has really been justified by faith in Christ is a completely different person. And that's the warning of verses 21 through 23. You may think that you understand justification by faith alone, and you may actually believe that you have been justified by Christ, but there's danger that you haven't been, and you can repeat everything that I just said. You can say more besides than what I've just said, and and you could actually be lost. You can say that you believe everything that I've just said, and you can be lost. And that's what makes these verses so compelling. It's what makes it so necessary. And it's why we have to think through this and we have to look at it with the utmost sincerity. So what I'm saying to you today is that you can sit in your chair confident that this is just another humdrum sermon of things that you already know. And this doesn't really mean too much to you. It doesn't require much thought. And so you put your brain on autopilot. And whenever I speak of salvation, you're automatically thinking, well, I've been there and I've done that. When in fact, the Bible teaches that you may have deceived yourself that you've actually been there and done that. You see, we've just come through a section of Scripture where in five messages I spoke on the proliferation of false prophets. Their intention is to deceive you, to put you on the wrong way, to give you a false gospel. They put obstructions in the way of eternal life. Those are false prophets. And now Jesus comes to something equally and probably even more insidious. It's not the danger of the false prophet uh, uh, deceiving you. It is the problem of self-deception. That you deceive yourself into thinking that you are actually a Christian. And oh, it is oh so dangerous for others to deceive you. But there's nothing like self-deception. That is the worst. Notice what Jesus says in verses 13 and 14. He just finished the major portion of the sermon. He's been giving them right doctrine. He talked about right practice. And finally, he comes down to the right way. And he says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. Now, you need to pay attention to all of this, but I want you to focus there on verse 14. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And focus mainly on that part. Few there be that find it. So there are actually few people that are on their way to heaven. And as you look around this church today, the number of people that are going to heaven could be so few that you're not even among that number. Now, the problem with our church, I think, is not the false prophet. I don't think that we need to worry about that. And hopefully you're convinced that I'm not a false prophet. Uh, You've been listening to me, and I hope that what you think I say is truth. And you've looked into what I've said, and you've examined the Scriptures for yourself. Hopefully you've come to the right conclusion. You'll notice that when we preach the Word of God here, we don't try to avoid anything. We don't try to skip and hop around the Bible and find the things that we like. We take things that are hard for us sometimes. We take things that are hard on our flesh that show us how weak that we are, how sinful that we are. We take things that make us uncomfortable. We talk about sin. We talk about repentance. We speak of hell. We speak about the infallibility of God's holy word and how we need to live by it. We try to preach all the word of God. 
And so I think that we've bridged the danger of the false prophets. So we've stepped over that chasm and hopefully where we are right now is that we are in the safety of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But now we have another danger and that's the danger of self-deception. And the question is, are you really a child of God? And to cut to the chase about whether you are or whether you aren't, Jesus is teaching us here that your life must show it. Your life must show it. And if it doesn't, if your desires and your thought processes and your motives, if what you speak from your heart is different from the purity of Christ, then you really don't know him. I want you to listen to one of the statements that Jesus made at the beginning of the sermon. He said in Matthew 5 verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that's the attitude that permeates this entire sermon. And that's what Jesus wants you to examine about yourself. He says in verses 21 through 23, actually, are you pure in heart? And I would submit, folks, that some of you aren't. Some of you say that you're saved, but you really aren't. And you're relying on something else. You say, Lord, Lord, but you aren't pure in heart. And Jesus said, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord is going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Not every one of them. And this is what we need to discuss today. So if your brain is on autopilot, kick it off. And you need to listen to me very carefully. Because when I'm preaching from this pulpit, I can look out on people who think that they're as saved as Abraham and Moses, who think that they know God as well as Peter and Paul. And you sit there with your arms crossed and you're smug and you're already thinking this is not for me and you're just Pharisees that have been hunkered down in your self-righteousness when actually there is no change that has ever taken place in your heart. Now let's notice first of all today the fervent proposition. And this is really all the further that we're going to get. I'm not even going to finish point number one today. The fervent proposition. Fervent means burning. And that's exactly what I want you to get out of this. This needs to burn down into you. This is, this is Jesus who is the one that Revelation says has eyes like to a flame of fire. He has a penetrating, burning gaze. And he steps out among these self-righteous Pharisees, these people there who thought that they were already in the kingdom of God, who thought they're on their way to heaven. And Jesus says to them, not every one of you are. And in that crowd at that particular time on that day, most of those people, in fact, weren't on their way to heaven. Probably the only ones that were were the disciples that Jesus had already spoken to. And I want to point out something further before we go on with this. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven is any indication at all that anyone can get to heaven without saying, Lord, Lord. This is not a criticism of the words, Lord, Lord. In fact, if you don't come to Christ surrendering yourself to him as Lord, then you don't have a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And this is a very critical point because it is a false gospel that says that you can have Christ as your Savior and not have him as your Lord. Paul wrote in Romans 10, 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Jesus said, ye call me master and Lord, and ye say, well, for so I am. And so the burning question today is that many say, Lord, Lord. They claim that they have submitted, but their lives actually say otherwise. 
And folks, this is a sobering reminder that if there's no evidence of submission in your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord, then you cannot claim to be a child of God. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So it's not only those who say, but those who actually do. Now this shows us then, first of all, the error of a verbal commitment without functional commitment. You know, sometimes we're so afraid that we're going to confuse people with the, about the correlation between faith and works that we push works aside as if they really don't matter. We don't really talk about doing anything. One of the past editors of a popular fundamental Baptist paper wrote, we must not confuse the requirements for discipleship with the requirements for salvation. Every disciple is a believer, but every believer is not a disciple. And folks, that is an upside-down, convoluted, unscriptural view of salvation, no matter who says that. The word disciple means a person that learns of Christ, a person who does his will, and it is synonymous with the believer. It's the way the Bible uses the word. If you are a disciple, you are a believer. And when the Bible speaks of disciples that didn't believe, it's the same thing as saying a person, or as a person who says, I am a Christian, but he's not really a Christian. You can't separate Christians from their works. You can't make a verbal commitment to the lordship of Christ without a functional one. And so I want to show you, or I want to look at some people that are convinced that they're Christians, but they need to listen very closely to these words that Jesus gave. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord. And so we're going to narrow it down, and we're going to find out who are the people of God and who aren't God's people. We'll start with this. Who, who thinks that they're children of God? Well, we'll start with this, the C and E Christians. And I think you know who those are, because we can take roll two times a year, and the C and E C&E Christians are the ones that are here on Christmas and Easter. And I think I could probably add to that one. We could call, uh, uh, add to the list, if you want to make a little notation out to the side, the MD Christians. And I'm not talking about doctors. I'm speaking about Mother's Day Christians. These are the ones that show up for Christmas and Easter and Mother's Day. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not complaining because they come because I love the opportunity to be able to speak to them. I mean, I like to preach to them the Word of God. It might be the only time during the year that they actually get to hear a gospel sermon. So don't tell them to stay away. You just need to go and warn them about what I've just said because probably they aren't here today. It's not Christmas, it's not Easter, it's not Mother's Day. So they're not here. And these are folks that are dependent upon some kind of religious experience that they once had. Some of them have been sprinkled or perhaps they've been immersed Mom and dad took them to church when they were little. And now sometimes mom and dad are convinced that they're saved. Even though you couldn't find a credible shred of evidence anywhere in their life that they love Christ. So they went to Sunday school. They learned all the Bible verses. And now, out of their duty to family or whatever, they show up for church. And if you ask them if they're Christian... Oh, they'd be offended by that. I mean, just the suggestion that they're not actually Christian would truly offend them. We're not Jews and we're not Muslims, so of course we're Christians. You know, if you sat down for five minutes and you began to discuss with them the simplest of things that we talk about here on Sunday mornings, they don't have a clue what's going on. They go on living their lives all the rest of the year, not much better than a pagan and sometimes even worse. 
But Christmas and Easter and Mother's Day, they're here. Because after all, what Christian wouldn't go to church on those days? Now, who do you think that Jesus had in mind when he was speaking to this crowd? I mean, here are people that are sitting before them that were so religious that there wasn't a holy day that they would miss. There wasn't a day of year that they weren't thinking about their religion. They were at the synagogue. They were there for every feast. They went to the Passover or observed the Passover. Many of them were even present for, every, for instruction every single day they were there in the synagogues. And Jesus looked at them with all of their religious devotion, everything that they claimed they were doing for God, and Jesus said to them, you aren't going to make it. Now folks, do you think that he's going to make a better assessment of those who never did anything? I mean, if works can't get you to heaven, have you somehow convinced yourself that lack of works gets you to heaven? Doesn't make any sense at all. So they have this commitment that they say that they made once, but there's absolutely no functional faith in their system. Number two, people who think that they're Christians are liturgical Christians. These are a different sort because they do make it to church most services. Uh, they, there's an orthodox creed that they can recite. One of their favorites is the Apostles' Creed. And so they go to church and they recite the Apostles' Creed and that, along with the Lord's Prayer. And their submission to the Lordship of Christ consists in those liturgies that they follow. And so they're good Protestants. It's just they don't know anything at all about being born again. And so they look at disdain upon anyone who spends too much time thinking about God. I mean, how, how could you let your religion possibly color your attitude towards politics? How, how can you let that affect the people that you associate with? And so when they talk about faith or talk about God or you want to do that in their presence, they'll say to you, that's too personal. We, we can't talk about things like that because they get uncomfortable with it. They don't want to talk about God in public. And so they say, Lord, Lord, but it's all hollow repetition. A few weeks ago, I talked with some people like this. They were fully convinced that they were Christians, and they made it not just to one church service, but they made it to many church services all over town, all different places. I mean, they were content to show up at church because that's what Christians do. And it didn't matter where they were. It didn't matter what that church teaches or what their doctrine is. That, they didn't care about that. They just went to church because that's what Christians do. And then you have, besides the liturgical Protestants, you have the ritualized Roman Catholics. They have their own liturgy. It's just a little bit different. So as long as they say their confession, they go to rosary and have the wafer at the Mass, they're good to go. Folks, none of them are real Christians. They say, Lord, Lord, but a deep abiding faith that rules their life from Sunday to Sunday, it's not there because they don't really know Christ. Thirdly, we have fully faking Christians. And I'm not going to spend too much time with these, because these are people who know they aren't Christians, but for some reason they think they have to convince people that they are. And many times these are people that have been through the C&E group, through the Christmas and Easter thing, and they're ones that have gone through the liturgies and so forth, but they got just disillusioned with all of that. But they've got family. I mean, they've still got people who think that they're Christians, and so they really do need to keep up that pretense. And I wouldn't be surprised if we don't have people like that that regularly attend Berean. They have their names on the roll. But deep down inside, there's nothing there. They're hollow. They go through the motions of Christianity. 
And they just keep on doing it. And you know, folks, the problem with that is because the longer that you stay in that condition, the harder that you become. Gospel messages go in one ear and out the other. It doesn't matter anymore. Now, they might show a little bit of emotion in church, and that's because emotions are infectious. When people cry, they cry. When people shout, they shout. They just got affected by the emotions just a little bit. But folks, when it comes down to where the rubber meets the road, there is no rubber meeting the road. And the only thing that stands between them and hell is a ticking heart and one last breath. But the fourth group, this is the one where we need to spend our time because this is the largest group of professing Christians. These are people who think that they really did get it. They, they do believe that they possess eternal life. But there's a problem with them too because when the role is called up yonder, they won't be there. They say, Lord, Lord, but they really don't know him. And who are these people? The largest group of confessing Christians and quite frankly, folks, the ones that we find in our own Baptist churches Fourthly, are the faith in faith Christians. They have faith in the fact that they have professed faith. Now, we're most concerned about these because they have walked the aisle. They went through the baptismal tank. They stay in church. I mean, they come to church. They attend Bible studies. They, they do keep, keep active. But their assurance is not really in Christ himself. Their assurance is in the fact that they profess something. It's in the activities that they perform. And this might be some of you. Might be some of you that already shut out the sermon this morning because you didn't think that you need it. You're probably, you were probably lost right after the scripture reading or when I said that this was intended for you. You just shut it out right then because you're convinced it's not for you. You don't need to look into this matter. You just go through the motions because your faith and your faith is good enough. And so what you refuse to do is to examine this fervent proposition because you think you don't need to examine yourself. When you got saved, somebody told you that you were on your way to heaven and never for a moment should you ever question that. Even to consider that you might not actually be saved is sinful because as good old Baptists, we've drummed it into everybody, we've been soundly thumped, or you have been soundly thumped with once saved, always saved. You know, there's nobody in the world that believes it any more strongly than I that once a person is saved, he is always saved. I mean, when you trust Christ as your Savior and you really know him, you'll never lose your salvation. There also is no one who more firmly believes than I that you have to be once saved. You first have to get it before you can say always saved. Well, the Bible often tells us that what we need to do as Christians is to go back and find out, are we really, were we really once saved? I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, if you would. Uh, It's not an unusual thing for the apostles to speak of self-examination. I mean, even people that have been in church for years who've been working in the church and put in countless hours of work you need to examine yourself. Look at verse number 1, first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul is writing, This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all other that if I come again, I will not spare. 
Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. Now, what does all of that mean? Well, twice before, Paul had been with the Corinthian church. The first time was when he planted the church in Corinth, and he spent 18 months preaching the gospel, working with those that had professed Christ, and watching them grow in the faith. Later, he heard that there was sin in the church. This was after he was gone, of course, and sin had crept in, and so he wrote a letter to them. And that's probably what he means when he says the second time that he was with them. I wrote you a letter, and he was warning them that they needed to get sin out of the church. Then 2 Corinthians, this letter, is the third time that he had contact with them. Only this time, things have changed just a little bit, because now Paul is wrestling with issues of doubts concerning his authority. Is he really an apostle of Christ? Now, can you imagine that? I mean, here are people that were converted under the ministry of probably the greatest preacher who ever lived, and now these people, the converts, have doubts about whether he's actually saved. Then he goes on in verse number 5, and he says, Examine yourselves whether you are in the faith. He says, Test yourselves, prove yourselves, and see if you are not actually reprobates. Isn't that what a lot of Christians do? You look around the room today and you wonder, who's he talking to? Who, who's that other person over there that thinks they're a Christian? Boy, he really needs to hammer them. Look at them. They can't be saved. And Christians do this all the time. They're convinced that they're saved, but they're not so convinced that other people are saved. And so they don't really do any self-examination. They don't need it, they say. So they're self-assured. Personal examination they don't do because the preacher said that you don't need to. You signed the card, you walked the aisle, and you got baptized, and so now you're saved. And the preacher said, don't let anybody ever tell you that you're not saved. You are. You are saved. That's all you need. Once saved, always saved. If you've read the New Testament, you find the apostles say otherwise. And here Paul calls for examination. And what would he have us examine? The answer is how that Christ is in you. What do you suppose he means by that? I don't think it's really too hard for us to figure out. If Christ is in you, then what do you do? Well, you show that he's there. You show he's there by proper motives, by different desires, by a holy disposition. You you didn't get what you claimed that you got if Christ hasn't changed you. The Holy Spirit is not in you if you are not a completely, completely different person and the Holy Spirit is working out of you. Well, Paul wrote this to the Philippians, Philippians 2, verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye also, as ye have also obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out doesn't mean work for your salvation. It means the salvation that has been implanted in you by the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest itself outwardly. It's supposed to show up in your life in all Christian graces. 
And let me tell you something. If you can sit in your pew today and you've got something against another Christian that's on the other side of the church and you are unwilling to work that out and you are unwilling to get things right and to grant that person forgiveness, I'm telling you, you are a person that needs to examine your heart to see if you are really in the faith. You work out your salvation by showing Christ in you, by showing Christian graces in your life. If you're a worker in this church, if you're even in leadership in this church, and you can jump on Facebook, and you can do your little tweets with an alter ego that's lewd and cursing and statements that betray what you are and what you sing about and what you teach Sunday school about and what you wear on Sunday for your clothes, what you work in the sound booth for, what you go to Bible studies for, what you work in the nursery for, what you show up at church for. If all of that is different from what you say and do right in here, then you had better examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. The Christian life works itself outwardly. And the evidence have to be, has to be some self-examination. You had better not be another person out there than you pretend to be in here. See, honest evaluation is more likely, folks, to prove that you are a reprobate rather than a child of God. The Apostle John addresses that, doesn't he? He says in 1 John 1, 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. And do not the truth. The apostle James addressed it, didn't he? Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. And listen to that. You can see it on the screen. Read the last part. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. What? Deceiving your own selves. Now, Jesus said that not only those who say, Lord, Lord, the truly redeemed are the ones who do the will of the Father. Self-deceived is what many Christians are. Arthur Pink wrote, They claim to be devoutly attached to Christ, but their claim is invalid, being unsupported by the evidence which is necessary to give it credibility. Their fine talk is not corroborated by a Christian walk, and therefore it is insufficient to obtain for them an entrance into his kingdom. It takes something more than sheep's clothing to make one a servant of Christ, and something more than lip service is needed before he will own anyone as a true disciple of his. It is empty and windy professors whom he here exposes. Pink also wrote, we seriously doubt whether there was ever been a time in the history of this Christian era when there were such multitudes of deceived souls within the churches who verily believe that all is well with their souls when in fact the wrath of God abideth on them. And we know of no single better calculated, no single thing better calculated to undeceive them than a full and faithful exposition of these closing verses of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Now, why this message? And why did Jesus end the Sermon on the Mount with these warnings? It's very clear to us. There is a broad way. There's a way that leads to destruction. He says there is a narrow way that leads to life. But he also said there are only a few that are on the narrow way. So he didn't stop with the false prophet. And he didn't expose only those that are in false churches listening to false prophets. He's also telling us that there are a great number of people sitting in the pews of Baptist churches today, and they've been here for years. 
And what they're doing is they're relying on something that they did in the past. They have faith in the fact that they professed faith. And so their assurance is not in the ultimate qualifier that Jesus gives us for real assurance in the apostles. You see, the way that you know that you truly belong to Christ is not that you walk Nile. It's not that you sign somebody's card. Real assurance is not in the empty motions that you go through in church every week. Real assurance is not in the outward performance of wearing certain clothes to make sure that you look like you're a Christian, nor is it the attendance at classes and participation in countless church activities. Real assurance comes from self-examination. What are you in your heart? Who are you in your heart? Are you pure in heart? And so you have to ask yourself, what are my motives? What are my true desires? Who do I really serve? And if the answer to that question is not in the affirmative, that I know Christ because I obey him. I know Christ because I don't have an alter ego out there. My church is who I am. What I'm showing in here is who I am. And that's who I really am in my soul. You know, Proverbs says that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. In these preceding verses, Jesus said that a corrupt tree does not bring forth good fruit. And he said, good trees. Good trees do not bring forth evil fruit. And so if you claim that you're a Christian and there's evil things coming out of your heart and all your social networking and all the little things that you do out there and all the things that you do on Friday and Saturday night, if it's not the same thing, the same person that you are in here, you just might be a reprobate. And that is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Close examination. Find out who you are. And friends, if you find you're struggling with this, you need to be at least honest enough to admit it to Christ. Hypocrisy never landed anybody into heaven. You're not going to fool God. You can fool me. You can fool people around you. You are not going to fool God. And as I said earlier, one of these days you're going to stand between life and death and you don't want to go to the other side and hear Jesus say, depart from me. Now, we have a lot more to talk about on this subject. I know some of you dread the topic, and if you didn't tune me out at first and you did listen today, you're dreading the fact that I'm going to bring it up again. But I am going to bring it up again. And really, the truth of the matter is that every single person in this room, no matter who you are, you ought to be somewhat uneasy about this this, uh, section of the Sermon on the Mount. This ought to be bothering you right now. You ought to be doing some introspection right at this very moment, some examination to see if you are in the faith. You need to find out which way are you going to go. You need to do some soul searching. And I promise you this, as I put these messages together, and as I've been working on them over these past few weeks, this preacher right here did his own soul searching. And don't think because I stand in a pulpit and preach to you that I don't also have to look at my own life and see what's going on there. Where where do those sins come from? Do I want to get rid of them? Am I protecting them? And if you don't find that the Holy Spirit is moving you away from them, the Holy Spirit is not affecting you with them, and you don't feel any compunction to do something about it, you just might not be a child of God. It's as plain and simple as that. That's what Jesus is trying to get across. And Jesus thought that it was important enough that he would hammer this crowd, this highly religious crowd, this righteous crowd that had all their bushels of good works it's supposedly done for God. And he took all of them and he hung them right on a precipice. And he said, which way are you going to go? 
Which way are you going to go? Are you going to choose life and you're going to follow me? Are you going to live by what I say? Or are you going to fall off the cliff and go into destruction? That's what Jesus is asking here. Now the truth is that you can sit in Berean Baptist Church with the Word of God in your hands, the King James 1611 if you have it, and you still have a super highway right beneath your feet to hell. Some of you, I'm afraid, are in the middle of one of its lanes. And the Holy Spirit is bearing down on you today. And he's telling you, you need to get out of there. You need to repent of your sins. You need to put your faith in Christ. You need to go and plead the mercy and the grace of God. Because if you don't, you'll end up in the devil's hell as sure as the world. You see, folks, if you have not submitted to the Lordship of Christ, you're not a Christian. It doesn't matter how long you've been at this. I want, understand that very clearly. It doesn't matter how long you've been at it. What matters are, is are you in it? Are you even in it? Once saved, always saved? Have you actually ever been once saved? Not everybody, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he Listen, he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. This is a sobering message that Jesus gives in the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not only does he give it in this one place, but in the following verses, the theme is repeated over and over and over again. Make sure that you know where you stand. Make sure you're not living in a house of cards, a house on shifting sands, one that has no depth to it, one that only claims Christianity but has no functional commitment at all. Lord, help people to see that it's not the works that we do, it's not the activities that we're in, it's not even leadership of church that causes a person to be saved hearts have to be right. We must be pure in heart. And what's coming out of the heart is not the purity of Jesus Christ. There is no evidence to say that we are truly believers. Lord, I hope that you'll speak to someone today. I pray that you will. Lost people, I pray that you'll draw them to you. People who claim that they're saved, may there be an attitude of inspection that goes deep down to the very deepest parts of the soul. Do I really know Christ? We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand.